I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. Hello all, it's John here. It's the podcast, the Dave McWilliams podcast, where, as you know, we try to make economics a little bit more accessible, a little bit more relevant, and a little bit more simple for ages like me who didn't pay enough attention in economics class in school. Anyway, we've a bit of a different episode for you this week. This is a chat that Macker had with Mark Blythe and Eric Lonergan, the two authors of a fantastic new book called Angrynomics. In the book, they talk about the growing anger around the world as a catalyst for economic change. It's about big ideas, yet simple solutions. Stuff that myself and Macker have talked about on this podcast over the last year. Things like wealth funds, digital tax, dual interest rates. It really is fascinating stuff. But above all, these ideas and these solutions are very, very doable. Look, it's a fascinating conversation and it's a brilliant book. So I'll let Macker take it from here. And actually, just before I do that, I just want to take the opportunity to remind you that from next month, our economics courses will be CPD applicable. So you'll be able to get continual professional development points through our economics course, Ask Mac tutorials, and so on. We'll give you all the details over the next few weeks. So for now, I'll just hand you over to Macker. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I have been lucky enough to get a review copy of a book that is just published called Angrynomics. And rarely do you read an economics book that makes you sit up and say, wow, these are interesting ideas. And I've just read one. It's called Angrynomics by Mark Blythe and Eric Lonergan. Mark's a Scotsman. Eric is a Dubliner. Mark has written a fantastic book. He's also a Kilconomics regular called Austerity, the History of a Dangerous Idea. Fantastically interesting look at why austerity is needless. Eric came across my radar screen on a beautiful little book on money, the philosophy of money. Well worth both of those books having a look at. But now they've come together with a new book called Angrynomics. I have both of them on the line. Mark, Eric... How are you, lads? I'm in there. Yeah, furious, livid. Great. Tell me, <laughs> livid. Tell me, tell me. Exactly, livid and angry. <laughs> tell me, guys. Maybe Mark. The book had an unusual 
delivery, which was a conversation between both of you. Why did you decide, before we get into the issues, I want to talk about the structure of the book. And Eric, come on in on this one. Why did you decide that the conversation was the way to go? So what happened was Eric and I met at finance conferences. And this is when I was doing the research for my last book, Austerity, that you mentioned. And I needed to meet bond market vigilantes. So I started going to these conferences and, and I met them. And I met Eric and I thought, well, he's not much of a vigilante. He seems quite sensible. And after a while, we struck up a friendship and we would be on panels together talking about stuff. And people would say things like, hey, you guys are really good at communicating in very straightforward terms how this shit works. So, you know, you should write a book. And we thought it's a great idea, but we could never find the time. So I hatched a plan. And the plan was I was going to come to London for a week. We were going to do a whole pile of reading on different things we wanted to talk about aging in the economy, technology, why people are all getting so pissed off all the time about their politics. And he sent me stuff, I sent him stuff, and then we got together and we recorded the chapters as a conversation. We just kind of talked the book out and recorded them on a couple of iPhones. Now, we got Siri to transcribe the conversations and, and God love her, putting up with an Irishman and a Scotsman's accent. And we got it into the normal text and I got a student to help me clean it up and I read it back and it was horrible. It was exactly what you'd expect. It sounded like two rich white guys setting the world to rights. And it was flat and it was boring. So we put it back into the conversation and actually structured it properly as a dialogue. And it just came to life. It was much, much better. Now, that led down the line, Eric can talk about this, to issues with publishers because they didn't know how to sell a dialogue. But that's basically how it came about in that form. And we were decided, once we did it, we decided this is the way we want to go. We don't want to change this. Eric? Yeah, I mean, it, the, the thing I'm pleased about is the feedback that people like the dialogue, because as Mark said, we had a lot of resistance from publishers. Like one publisher in particular said it reads like a magazine. And I thought that's fantastic. You know, people read magazines. Exactly, it's, exactly. It's, it's really hard to read a book on political economy. And uh, so we just stuck to our guns. We had a lot of resistance from publishers. And it also allows us to disagree. And I think, I mean, you know, with, with these kind of issues to try and make issues of politics, economics, and they're important, but to bring them alive, having an argument, having a disagreement. I, I hope it's a book you can pretty much open up at any point and you can just join in the conversation. That, that's really the aim. Well, it's interesting you say that, Eric, because that's exactly how I read it, which was flicking between ideas and going forward, going back. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, you'd read these things, okay, I'm interested in this Take it, and then the idea of a conversation, the idea that there was disagreement, actually is incredibly attractive because it feels like a conversation and it feels like the sort of conversation you'd have as you try to sort of grope your way to an answer. It's like, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? No, I think this. So look, look guys, anyway, well done. The book is an amazing read. I think it's a, it's a great summer read and I'm glad to see that I've seen it on the FT's summer reads of economics books and it's it's really making, making progress. I know how hard it is to get a book out there, number one, and then get it listened to. But let's focus, Mark, on the issues, right? Angry numbers. Where? Let's talk about the issue of anger. Why do you think... There's so much anger out there. What's it related to and how does it feed back into economics? So the middle of the book deals with this, whereas the first part of the book frames it. So Eric will talk about how we think about anger. I want to talk about how we think it's generated. So there's an analogy that we use in the book, or a metaphor, if you will, which is capitalism is a bit like a computer. There's different national versions, and just as you've got different versions of laptops, they all have the same components. 
And we say in the book, if you drop your laptop on the floor, you'll find it's got a motherboard, it's got a video chip, it's got this, that, and the next thing. And just like national economies, everybody has a labor market, everybody has a capital market, but they massively differ when you compare them across countries. Now, at any given point in time, just like a computer, there's got to be some software that gives instructions on that hardware of how to run. And that's the economic ideas that we have in a given moment. And what happens, just like computers, is over time, incompatibilities between the hardware and the software, how the economy actually works and our ideas about it, begin to cause problems. And every now and again, you get these whopping great systems crashes. So you can think about the Great Depression and the, the chaos after World War I and the complete collapse of the interwar economy. That was like a big systems failure. After that, there was an attempt to rebuild the hardware and reboot the software. That would be kind of the national economies that we got after the 1940s and 50s. And Keynesian macroeconomics demand driving the whole system, full employment as the policy target. That was the sort of the way that we ran the world. The next big system crash comes along in the 1970s. That's when you get the big inflationary problems in the 70s. And then at that point, there's a whole kind of hardware modification. This is when central banks suddenly come to prominence. And then there's a whole rewriting of the software, which is variously what we call neoliberal. It's a more privatized, integrates, globalization, et cetera, et cetera. That system itself seems to work for a while. And then in 2008, that one blows up. Why is this? Because there's bugs in the software all along. And the bug in the software which we focus upon in the book is the various guises in which inequality, inequality in, in the way that profits are dispersed amongst firms, uh, inequality in wages, inequality in wealth, inequality in life chances. All of that was filled in by credit and we had a huge credit crisis. Now, our basic argument on the macro level on this level is that what should have happened in 2008 was another fundamental reset of the system, instead of which the central banks came to the rescue, just pumped trillions and trillions of dollars, euros and yen into the system, and it came back as it was before. But all of those things that were uh, generating all of those inequalities are still there. So what begins to happen is that people begin to get very angry about the fact that they're living in a world in which is very much socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor, austerity for us and bailouts for them. And although you're not reducing it to the financial crisis, and this is it, that was the accelerant on something that had been building for a very long time across multiple societies. And the breakdown in politics is essentially people saying, we don't believe the chancellors who are running this anymore. They told us they were experts. They told us they were in charge. They don't know what they're doing, etc. And that's where the anger begins to build. Eric, let's talk about the anger itself. I mean, talk me through that phase, because obviously that's that's the catalyst for the analysis. Yeah. Talk me through um, it. Well, so there was a certain point in time. So Mark and I had a kind of view of the world and had some ideas about how we thought we could tackle some of the problems. And at one point, Mark sort of said, why are people getting angry? And we just started, we thought, can we integrate anger? And we went off and we decided to, to have a look at the subject. And anger is fascinating. I mean, first of all, every human being knows what anger is. You know, children experience anger. Uh, children experience rage. And yet, if you ask most people, talk to me about anger. Is anger a good thing? Is anger a bad thing? Why do people get angry? I mean, I even think to myself, I'm not sure I ever asked myself that question and reflected upon it. It's a very odd thing that human beings do getting angry. Loss of temper. So that was kind of, that really got us thinking and got the kind of intellectual juices flowing because it's something that's so prevalent, people refer to repeatedly, and yet we're actually very inarticulate when it comes to discussing it. 
Um, and then we started reading and we discovered this is a subject that is thrown across all disciplines. There's neuroscience, moral philosophy, social psychology, self-help books. And what was lacking, though, was some kind of a synthesis. And there, there were two dimensions that really interested us about this, is, is we came upon the idea that there was both a public anger and a private anger. And these are very, very different. And, and we'd get on to talk about this, but they're almost like opposites. And then within public anger, it also has a sort of anger of angels and an anger of devils. And the anger of angels is, is the well-known, if, if you read the like, philosophy of, on, on anger, dating all the way back to Aristotle, Aristotle viewed anger as a response to injustice. Um, and you see this even today. I, I was fascinated. There was a, there's a great YouTube, if you haven't seen it, with Cornell West, who's the sort of intellectual forefather of a lot of the civil rights movement in, in, in America. An amazing talker as well. An amazing An amazing. He, I actually was lucky yeah. enough to be at a Bernie Sanders think-in in Vermont. And Cornell was the speaker. And I just was blown away. It's the charisma. And, but so his is the anger of angels, is how I describe it. And, and he actually says, and this is an Aristotelian idea or dates back to Aristotle, is he was saying, what would it say about our society if people weren't on the streets protesting? You yes. Know, if you can witness point. police brutality like that, can you imagine our society was so apathetic and amoral? That we wouldn't respond to, and and that so that's one type of anger, which is the the righteous indignation. Now, then, the next key point on our kind of intellectual journey was to go to the other extreme. And funnily enough, this started by using big data. We did a big search of news stories, and we got it to categorize the news stories based on the theme of anger. And the second most frequent type of story concerned angry sports fans. Now. I'm sure, and I'm sure you can relate to this, David. As soon as you say that, uh, absolutely, I know exactly. A, a I, I am that man. Match, I am that man. that man, and <laughs> I've been in that group many yeah. times, watching the fantastically deflationary experience of the Republic of Ireland around the world. Uh, I've, I've described him as the least talented but most loved football team in the world, and they make and you angry. They make you angry, and this was so intriguing. And we suddenly started to go, well, why? And I started going to football matches, and I was obsessed by watching the fans. And I'm only interested in football matches with a passionate, crazy fan base. You know, forget about the football. Go to where the real nutters, lunatic fringe are. And as, I, as a Leeds United fan, I have <laughs> been at that fringe. I have been in the lunatic fringe, and that is a particularly lunatic bunch. But go on. This is fascinating. So you, you go well, and you watch... The fans. You go and you watch a football match. And the interesting thing is it doesn't surprise anybody that the angry fan hates the opposition. But what's, what's striking is they regulate their own, right? So, so they attack their own players for not being passionate enough. They leave and attack their own fans. So I've seen break fans, violence breaking out at a Watford football match where I've taken Mark between fans because one guy is singing, isn't singing enough. And he's been a season ticket holder for longer. And so the idea came to us that these guys regulate tribal identity. And, and we started to look into the, the, the social psychology and the literature on this. And there's, there's, this is a phenomena and it is a precursor to violence. So you, you end up realizing that anger has these two completely different faces. It, it, it is a recognition. It's a requirement to enforce our moral values, the, the Cornell West indignation. But it's also triggered to effectively trigger, you know, amoral violence and tribal rage. 
Now let's look at at, at the the second one because the first one. By the way, if you have you have either of you read Canetti's uh, book, Elias Canetti's book on crowds, won the Nobel Prize in the early eighties. Yeah. Elias Canetti, yeah. extraordinary book. It's an amazing study, a little bit like yourself, Eric, going and observing what people do in crowds and what is what permission is given by the crowd, etc., etc. But let's come back. So there's two types of, of anger. One is righteous indignation, which is a sort of a positive force, and the one we're seeing now in Black Lives Matter, for example, in the States. And then the other is this, this more kind of rage and impotence leading to violence. Where do you see Western democracies in this sort of analysis right now, this type of anger, before we come back to the solutions? But give me examples of, of the types of anger we're seeing now. You see it everywhere, and you see the two of them mixed together. So I'll give you one of the examples we use in the book, which I think you you still see every day here, or at least you're getting diminishing returns to it, but it's Trump. So what does Trump do? Trump basically goes to a place like Wisconsin. Wisconsin's lost a third of its industry, to not to Mexico, but to the south, to non-union states. Then it loses the rest to Mexico and China. Uh, you're talking a once very rich part of the country that's basically been on the down for 20 years the Democrats are celebrating Obama's legacy and how wonderful everything is. And people, of course, are like, are you kidding me? How wonderful things are? Things are crap here. And you guys come in every four years and just expect us to vote for you. Trump walks in and senses this and takes the language of righteous indignation, takes this language of you have been ignored. He literally says, I am your voice. He does that recognition and that uh, addressing the issue of no one's listening to you. I hear you. He then pivots and he turns around and he goes straight to the southern border, down to Arizona, to the border states, and starts talking about Mexicans as rapists and how they are like this and we are like this. So on the one hand, he's using the anger of angels and recognition. On the other hand, he's weaponizing the energy of what we call tri- the, the, the uh, energy of tribes to build a coalition which encourages both sides, which is very typical of right-wing populism. Other places that you see this, think about the fact that you have a disconnected Parisian elite Nobody who's normal can afford to live in Paris anymore. They all live in the burbs and commute in. Everybody in Europe drives diesel. Along comes uh, Macron, and Macron says, well, we need to care about the environment. So what we'll do is we'll put a tax on diesel. And everybody who's now commuting into France on stagnant wages now has to fork out another 15 uh, euros a month for this tax. And this creates the Gé-Jean movement, which has racked French politics for the past two years. You can go to Chile. We're simply putting another 20, I think it was 25 cents on the subway in Santiago caused a series of riots that cost around 40 people their lives over a three month period. So we see this anger coming out of basically a politics of recognition, a demand for recognition based upon systematic inequalities in these economies that has either weaponized this tribalism or addressed this moral outrage. And you see the two of them in combination all over the place. And guys, Let's look at, for example, closer to home. Let's look at Brexit. Can you frame Brexit in this this in this sort of framework? Can you frame the rise of Sinn Féin, Eric, here in this sort of framework? Is that what you think? Definitely. Um, I think Brexit. You you see both of these 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 types. So you see both the moral outrage. I think to some extent on both sides, or an ethical kind of argument. Um, and and you you for sure see the tribal energy. I mean, and in fact, um, you know, Farage very clearly, I think, represents the tribal rage. And he refers to 
this kind of anger. And he's always got a nod and a wink to nationalism very clearly. I think that the kind of the moral dimension is less clear. I mean, you know, uh, Marine Khan, who I think is the most articulate or one of the most articulate sort of pro Brexiteers. And I, th- I think you've had her at Kilkenonics. Yeah, no, she's, 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 she's a wonderfully articulate, uh, brilliant journalist, great fun. Just for those of you listening who don't know Marine, she is the FT's Brussels correspondent, uh, observant Muslim, uh, takes her religion and ethics very, very seriously and has a very interesting take on why she's a Brexiteer. Very, quite unusual, quite unusual and very articulate. But go on, Eric. Uh, no, that's I've right. And, and I, I have a lot of sympathy. And, and I'm, I'm sure the three of us do. I, you know, and this is the dimension of Europe it, that, that, that left us all, I think, with, with a sense of anger and an ethical uh, objection was the Euro crisis. Um, and I think, you know, the appalling treatment of nations, the overriding of any sense of sovereignty, appalling overreach by, by bureaucrats in many cases, you know, in the case of the ECB, hugely overstepping their legal mandate um, and literally determining the fate of nations without even a nod towards democratic legitimacy. Uh, God, I sound like a Euro- an anti-European. I, I was know. about to say, when did you join uh, the Brexit Party? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Irish-Italian, you know. I, I, I know. I, I'm, I'm You're the only Irish-Italian man who doesn't make chips. You're like swanky Irish-Italian. <laughs> I was thinking, you know, I was, you know, the, the Irish-Italian is a long and illustrious history. And uh, I, w- I was always very intrigued at Irish-Italians. There's an Irish-Italian chipper association, Eric. Do you know that? I don't, but I tell you what, they make the best chips. They definitely make the best chips. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, so let's, let's talk about, there's, we have the anger. We know what's going on. How does democracy and economics solve 
the problem of making people feel less angry because at its core, sometimes rage and anger is the is the counterpoint to impotence. When you don't have power, you get angry. I think that's why children get angry because they don't have any power over what's going on. How do we change economics now to subdue the anger, to make people feel they have a stake and therefore to prevent people moving in that tribal way of us and them and foreigners and locals and domestics and cosmopolitans? How do, how do you change this? So I'm going to jump in first on this one because I've got an, I live and die by metaphor and I've discovered a new one for talking about this. So here's what I hate. I can't... Have you ever had anybody at Calconomics who does all the nudge stuff? You know, the whole thing about nudging people into better behaviours? Yeah. You put a tax yeah, on, so does all... Right, so basically that stuff drives me completely mental because essentially what it says is you're not a fellow citizen with whom I have to reason. You're actually just a social problem I need to manage. And so much of our politics, particularly on the kind of centre or reformist left, has become technocratic wonkery and nudging. And they think that politics is reducible to a long list of policies, right? So so Elizabeth Warren, although I very much like what she does, I hate the way she does it, because I've got a policy for that. Nobody dies on the barricades for a policy, right? So how should you think about this? Well, we've started to think about what we propose, and Eric will talk in detail in a minute about them, as the furniture. And here's what I mean by this. If you take a whole bunch of people and put them in a room, the way that they interact with each other is very much contingent upon the furniture that's in the room. If they've got couches, they might relax. If they've got hardback chairs facing away from each other, they're not going to have a swinging time. So the way that we think about these proposals, a citizen's wealth fund, a digital tax, which basically grants property rights to people whose data is used by the big data companies, uh, something very technical, dual interest rates, helicopter money. If we list all these as kind of policies, people are like, what the hell's that? But what we want to suggest is if you put this into your economy, if you build these institutions, if you do this stuff, it changes the furniture in the room. It changes the possibility of what you can do in your politics. And that's why we focus on these ones, because they hang together and if you were to do these four things, it would make a huge difference to the life chances, I would think, of 80% of the people in your country. Now, having set it up that way, take it away, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, so give me the four big solutions, the big four, the four big ideas. Well, first of all, I just would like to repeat the fact that we're furniture makers, because I've always <laughs> wanted to be a furniture maker rather than an economist. Well, you know, it's, um, it's interesting. When I heard the expression cabinet makers, I thought they actually made cabinets. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of cabinets out there. Go for it, Eric. Wood turners. Yeah, well, maybe exactly. if I could, before we get into, into the policies, if, if you could let me know, I think there's one other really important thing because I think this particularly will resonate for me and I think also from Mark, but, but coming, come, certainly having grown up in Ireland in, in the 70s and 80s, is the power of nationalism as a political motivator is blindingly obvious if you've experienced it firsthand. Um, and I think one of the big challenges, first of all, is to increase awareness of the extent to which the political class are incentivized to motivate, motivate and manipulate us by making problems into the other, so that somebody else is the cause of the problem, whether it's the Europeans, whether it's immigrants, whether it's Mexicans, whether it's division within our own societies. Um, and, and, and I think one of the big arguments we make in the book, which I think is important, is that th this arose or accelerated this trend towards nationalism globally 
during the neoliberal era because actually we lost alternative motivating political ideologies. You know, what does that mean in English? Is, is we stopped giving a shit about anything in politics because it was all kind of boring centrism and nothing really seemed to matter or motivate people. But politicians still need to get elected and the press needs to get eyeballs, particularly in a competitive digital age. And this coalescence of incentives between the political class and the media, I think, is what has, has kind of hyper-fueled tribalism. So the real challenge for all of us who care about this stuff is how do we create a politics that isn't about tribalism, but people care enough about to you know, go out and fight and motivate and get angry about in a positive way? That was the challenge we set ourselves. No, I mean, I think that's incredibly well put because I think you are right. I mean, people, it is this disconnect between ourselves and you're right about the media needing a story, needing to whip something up, needing to sell newspapers uh, and, and, and get ad revenues and, and whatever. And the other side is this sort of technocratic takeover of politics where there's no big idea that you get emotional about. You know, there's no big justice and equality and civil yeah. rights and all these big ideas that you got out of bed for have yeah. kind of disappeared from the landscape in terms of politics. So let's look now, gents, at the the solutions that you said, the sort of the furniture twisting and turning, the, the change in the dynamic to change politics in order, the objective that more and more people have a stake in society and do not get attracted by, you know, the nastier end of politics. Let's talk... Let's talk the four big ideas. Eric, maybe you take two. Mark, you take two. Sure. Eric has to take dual interest rates because I always get that one wrong. Fair enough. I'll start with the Citizens Wealth Fund, right? So here's what happens every time there's a financial crisis, which is basically every decade, and they get bigger every time, is that anyone with money gets bailed out, and anybody who lives on wages gets stuffed. What's remarkable about this crisis, in Europe at least, is how they've done the wage furloughs. Basically, they've done one of the things that we talk about, helicopter money. Rather than making people unemployed and doing this weird thing through the central bank called quantitative easing, why not just people, mail people checks to keep the economy whole so that when the crisis passes, then they're back to work? And in fact, this, will, this has proven to be remarkably successful. So one of the things that we talk about helicopter money is already being done because of the COVID crisis. But the big one that we've got is this. Every time there's a financial crisis, the investor classes, the top 20% who own all the stocks and shares, dump them. And what do they want and what do their institutions want? They want to buy government debt. Why? Because that's a safe asset. The government's not going to go bankrupt it's got a, if it's got a printing press or it's reasonably well run, like Ireland. Whereas a firm can go bankrupt and you don't want to be caught with worthless paper. So what happens every time this occurs is central banks, whether it's the Bank of England or whether it's the ECB or particularly the Fed in America, they come along and they buy all those assets. They're basically putting a floor under how far those assets can go. And that encourages investors to come back in. It's basically saying we've got capitalism, but nobody ever has to take a loss. Now, that's, that's just a ridiculous way of running the shop, right? On the other side, meanwhile, if you're dependent on labour income, you've got nothing, particularly if you live in the US. So we say, why on earth are we doing this? Why don't we get the government in the form of the central bank to come in and actually buy those equities? Don't just put a floor under their prices through all this fancy monetary policy. Just buy the bloody things. Put them into a big passive fund. What that means is you buy them all, you put them in a box, and you basically get an independent board that knows how to do investment to basically run these things for the next 10 to 15 years. And then what happens is so-called equity stocks and shares 
basically give you a payoff after inflation of between 4 and 6% a year. You compound that for 15 years. If you did that with 20% of, of GDP in a crisis, you would have literally, in the case of the United States, trillions of dollars. You haven't taxed a single person to generate this wealth. You've done it simply because the government's cost of borrowing goes down in a crisis. The private sector goes up. You buy all this stuff. You let basically nature take its course over the next 15 to 20 years. You would have trillions of dollars to redistribute to the bottom 80% of the population, the ones who don't have assets. And that gives them a claim on the national wealth. It makes them asset holders. It gives them a stake in the game. Rather than regarding them as a social problem to be managed, you're actually saying to your fellow citizens, this is your wealth and we're collecting Collectively managing it, so we all have a stake in how the society grows and how it's run, how it's run, and we think that's incredibly important. And societies such as like Ireland are exactly the right size to do this. They have enough trust and transparency that you can actually make this work on a basis and really change the lives of people, whether it's through finance and public housing, something that's badly needed in Ireland, whether it's through bolstering the medical sector, whether it's through doing more for higher education and skills. You could do it, and we could, in a sense, earn the money in a good capitalist way that keeps the economy going, but then redistributes way more than you could ever do through taxes. Mark, you know, it's really fascinating because this is an issue that we've been teasing out on the podcast in various different ways. This idea of wealth funds using the power of monetary policy, using the opportunity that the crisis affords, or not even the crisis affords, but the fact that interest rates are on a structural downward path. And consequently, the state is in the position to just think a little bit differently about the way in which it deals with, as you said, the bottom 80%, not the top 20%, who has certainly over the last 30 years have been bailed out, been not just bailed out, but their policy has always jaundiced towards their interests and they have become rich. And this is obviously amplifying inequality. Eric, give me the two other ideas, because I, I mean, I find these ideas not only fas fascinating, but they're beautifully doable, which is actually the practically interesting side of this. You can do all this. Eric, give me the other two ideas you have. Right. I mean, that is the glory of it, is this is solvable. So if, if I just, but just to put the, the other ideas in context, there's three things that we all really, really care about. And I think the silent majority and more all agree on, which is we need to make our planet sustainable. Right? Nobody disagrees with that apart from the lunatic fringe. The level of inequality that you've been describing is totally unacceptable. It's not a high-functioning society when 90% of the, of the wealth is held in the hands of 1%, right? We, surely we can do better than that. And the other thing is recessions are a disaster and we need to stop. If we can't stop recessions, we need to minimize the consequences of recessions. And, and so that's what the three, in a sense, the three kind of lines of attack is we're saying we're going to do something about the planet we're going to do something about inequality and we're going to do something about recessions. And we're also saying the madness here, and, and I think you, David, to your credit, are one of the few, and I literally mean a handful of economists in the world, who, who really realise how lucky we are. And the reason we're incredibly lucky is the state can borrow at negative real interest rates for up to 30 years across the developed world. Now, what does that mean in English? It means the private sector is paying the government right, to borrow. Which, which means, and this is a law of arithmetic, anything that the government does with its banshee, as long as it generates a positive return, which Mark was describing, it creates value. It is a stronger balance sheet as a result. So 
Now, what is the challenge the environment says we need to do investment spending? Well, that's fantastic because we can finance at negative real rates. We can do all the investment spending we want. So, and the way we want to tackle that is Mark described the, 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 the National Wealth Fund as a way to give assets to people who don't currently have assets. And that, that we could do literally within six months. You could have a dramatic impact on wealth inequality. But also within not much longer than that, two to three years, you could transform, for example, the nature of the energy infrastructure in Europe. How do you do that? It's this idea of dual interest rates. Am I allowed to, am I allowed to have a go, go at explaining go this? For it, go for it. Go right. for it. Dual interest rates is a really simple idea, which is the problem at the moment in the world, or at least the perceived problem is central banks have kept on cutting interest rates. People who have mortgages understand this. Every time the interest rate comes down, you, you should have a lower mortgage. You're a bit better off. What do you do when you get close to zero and everybody's already got a lot of debt and banks can't make any money? Is your mortgage rates don't come down, but also... People who save money, whether you're a pensioner or whoever you are and you've got savings, you lose all your interest income. So you've got a problem. When I cut interest rates, it doesn't seem to work anymore. Well, here's the idea. What happens if you reduce the interest rate on loans and you raise the interest rate on deposits, right? So people who have savings get more income and people who are borrowing have lower interest payments. That is guaranteed to win, right? It's, it's absolutely win-win. And the point is, we can do that. And thanks to probably one of the most unrecognized heroes of the current crisis, Philip Lane at the European Central Bank, the European Central Bank is already doing that. Now, once you think that through, the power is absolutely phenomenal. I'll give one simple example and then I'll shut up. Let's say the European Central Bank came out tomorrow and said, we're going to do five-year loans, right, at minus 3%. And these loans, we're going to do 20% of Eurozone GDP. And these loans are only available to if you make green investments. They have to be in sustainable investments in the economy. And not only that, the, the banks have to pass on 200 basis points a more. In other words, they have to cut the interest rates in those loans by, 200, by 2%. Right? Instantaneously, you will get a boom in sustainable energy investment in the Eurozone. Right? And that could be replicated across the developed world. Right. So the environment, this is not a problem, actually, transforming our economies. It is a gift, right? We have an incredibly low cost of debt, which for 20 to 30 years, and we have a huge need to become more industrially oriented, have more capital goods investment, create much higher quality jobs, create a much cleaner and sustainable growth model. That's just a failure of the mind. Eric, explain this to me. If you have two different interest rates, right? So you have one positive for the saver. So he or she gets a stream of income for their savings. And you have a negative rate of interest for the borrower. Who loses? Does the bank lose in the middle? Because obviously the bank needs to generate income from the spread between lending and borrowing. Or is it the central bank finances? How is it actually done in practicality? Well, you're spot on. So the loser here, the loser in inverted commas is the central bank. But the beauty of being a central bank is the central bank can create money. And this is where, you know, we were chatting before this about modern monetary theory and people like Stephanie Kelton, who I have a huge amount of respect for, and I think is, is phenomenally interesting. And I give a plug to her book as well, The Deficit Myth, which I would highly recommend. And there, I, there the, the point that Stephanie makes is that the only constraint on creating money is inflation. Right. The problem we have in the world at the moment is there's no inflation and the risk is outright deflation. So you are absolutely right. 
You can't, the commercial banking system can't run with dual interest rates in this sense, because if it was doing it off its own balance sheet, it would have a negative profitability. It would just be losing money. But the central bank can. And this is the brilliance of what Philip Lane has done at the European Central Bank, and which should be replicated. Economists need to get their heads around this, right? There's a big problem with kind of moving policy economists to understand this. And we need to do it more aggressively. But you're absolutely right. We, we are financing this at the margin and utilizing the incentive structure and leverage. But we're financing it at the margin by creating money. But we're in a position to create money because our, the risk is deflation. This I, was, would just jump, I would just jump in for a second on this one. I, I said that I wasn't going to talk about dual interest rates and now I am a little bit. Because <laughs> if, if you are... If you are worried about, you know, basically the, the balance sheet of the central bank, right, booking losses, there's a huge debate about whether it's actually possible, given the fact that they can always print money to cover their losses. But put that to one side. Imagine that you targeted that the way that Eric said. So basically, you need to do a much a stronger investment in, let's say, solar farms in southern Europe, right? That's what we're going to be spending it on. Well, the central bank, as a condition of its loan, could set up a private company, right, and that private company could insist on having 10% of the equity in these new ventures. And then the equity, the, the, the value of that equity would be then registered on the central bank's balance sheet as a corresponding plus to the minus of the credit creation. So it's just, again, as Eric says, this is a failure of the imagination. There's no law of physics that says you can't do this stuff. No, the laws of arithmetic say it's a no-brainer. Right. If you give, you know, we all know this. The simple example is a buy to let property. If you could imagine, if you could get a, a mortgage at a negative interest rate, that means you're paid by the bank to take out the mortgage. And then you get a positive rental income. And that's, your equity goes that's, up every year. Guys, just before we go, what sort of feedback are you getting? Because I uh, find these ideas not only absolutely comprehensible, feasible, practical, doable, are you getting pushback? Are you getting a sense that these ideas, although when we talk about them, are quite rational? There's a sense, I, I've always had this, this, this weird feeling that the more educated people are, the less they realize that sometimes simple solutions are in front of their eyes. Are you getting pushback? Mark, shall I just make some observations? I mean, I I've, have I've a lot of contacts with, with policymakers. I mean, I, I think one of the other things we try to do, and I think David will appeal to you as well, is to try and come up with ideas that don't obviously fit on the political spectrum. So where the, where our, where people's tribal instincts will go, oh, that's left-wing, I don't like it, or that's right-wing, I don't like it. And I think these ideas uh, have appeal across the political spectrum, and that's where there is a great opportunity. So, so I think there's an element where people slightly scratch their heads. Um, people are very confused and nervous about leverage, People are very confused by what's happening with monetary policy and interest rates, and I fully understand that. But I, I actually think they are gathering an awful lot of momentums, uh, uh, momentum. And one of the one of the, the, the points I'd like maybe to, to intro for Mark on this is the upside that can come from a return to the nation state is we have literally tens of countries with the same problem. All it's going to take is one or two of them to break ranks and others will copy. That's what happens with politics. You know, and that's why I was really interested, David, I know you wrote about the, the National Wealth Fund and the whole idea that Ireland could have a, a really innovative new economic strategy. And the irony would be if Ireland does it and it, it's shown to work, people will copy it. 
That's very true. Mark, last word on this, because it's a fascinating discussion, but we, we hopefully this will actually inform so, and encourage people to go out and get this book because it's, it's full of amazingly brilliant ideas. And Eric, you're absolutely right. I mean, I have always felt that Ireland has an insecurity when it comes to making this first move. But we did it many, many years ago on the multinationals. We took a bit of flack from it, but it transformed the economy, the whole society, profoundly. And Ireland could be a first mover. Mark, last word on this. I know you're over in the States. I know the States is a very strange place. How would you like to conclude, Mr. Blythe, before I see you again, hopefully at Kilconomics, the pair of you? So, uh, seeing as I'm being the metaphor generator for this conversation, I'm going to end with a metaphor drawn from a film. Do you remember The Lord of the Rings? I do. Do you remember the third film, the big stramash at the end? There's a line where Aragon says, war is upon you whether you wish it or not. So my little metaphor here is these ideas are upon you whether you wish it or not. And I'll give you an example in closing. Last week, the Americans who basically own Amazon, Facebook, Google, 20% of the US stock market, the only bit that's growing the digital economy. As we know, these people pay no taxes. Now, without getting into Ireland's role in that, put that to one side for a minute, right? At the end of the day, it's an absolute disgrace. They have monopoly profits. They pay no taxes. And the Americans went to the OECD, this organization in Paris, and were basically saying, yeah, let's talk about how we can have a tax on this. And I think it's, yeah, whatever, right? And of course, they said, well, hang on a minute. All these companies are ours. They're the only equities anybody wants to hold. Stuff that, you're not paying any taxes. And if anybody in Europe tries to put a tax on these guys, we're going to put tariffs on you. This is from your ally. Remember that, right? So you can't tax these guys anymore. Well, we've got a, we've got, we've got a way of thinking about this that gets right around that problem. And it's called the digital dividend. You see, what makes Google profitable is the fact that you give them your data. What makes Facebook profitable is you give them your data. So why are we giving it away for free? Rather than trying to tax them as end users, why don't we license our data to them? And if they don't want to do that, then they don't have any data and then their business model collapses. So there's a way that you get around the fairness and equity issue with these monopolists that don't pay any profit, pay taxes on their profits. But you do it in such a way that you sell a property right my information and the information of my fellow citizens. You license that to these companies, and then basically there's a proper trade there that allows them to do what they do, but we also get the revenue back. So, you know, things happen in the world that suddenly make silly ideas and outlandish schemes seem perfectly reasonable in exactly what we're doing and what we should be doing, and I think that's where we are just now. Mark Blythe and Eric Lonergan, the authors of this really fascinating book, Angrynomics, thank you both for your time, and we'll talk to you both soon. Cheers, lads. Thanks, David. Those guys are great. Yeah, Those guys are really good. And it, there's a lot of stuff that they were talking about that is similar to what you were talking about as well. But yeah. it's kind of like the ideas seem... But they're just better at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> but the ideas are simple. They're simple. And, and that's, that's what I find fascinating. Look, it's always the way, John, that if you really understand your subject, as those two guys do, you arrive at very simple conclusions yeah. and simple options. Yeah. And you don't get bamboozled by what is not important. Remember this idea we said, you know, what is important is rarely complicated and what is complicated is rarely important. Sure, yeah. And it's very much the case uh, for economic ideas. I mean, Mark Blythe's start there was talking about the history of big ideas. He was talking about what happened. You remember he was talking about the systems failure of the Great Depression yeah. And then the post-Second World War period, 
and then the neoliberal period. So he's talking about these great swathes where ideas become accepted. Yeah. And I think their ideas are soon to become accepted because they're simple, right? They have to gain that traction first. Yeah, but, you know, like uh, they do have to gain gain traction, but it is a battle for ideas. Mm. Economic policy and economics is a battle for ideas. Think what they're talking about. They're talking about a wealth fund, right? Something that we've talked about. It makes complete sense. Yeah. They're talking about a digital tax on your data, on your privacy. It makes complete another sense and it seems to be coming in terms of technology. Yeah. They're talking about dual interest rates. They're talking about the fact that the central bank can lose money for a long time because it prints the stuff. So yeah, you can yeah, actually yeah, yeah. kickstart the economy with the central bank. These are these are big but simple ideas. And what is quite intriguing is the way in which so many very well-educated people refuse to accept simple solutions because I think their very commitment to education is a type of status that they have. And they believe that if the local bus driver can figure it out, it can't be good because I'm the big swanky pants PhD in economics who spent 20 years in university. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It's actually, it's actually, it's a status thing. And I think that's what Mark and Eric were saying. Like, these are doable things. These are simple ideas that can be executed. What is interesting actually is, and we've spoken about this before, is how new ideas, it's like the, the old phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And that a lot of the establishment who have been around for a long time and are kind of got stuck in the rut of, of, of the norm. But what I find encouraging is that there is a younger fraternity of politicians in Europe that might be more open to this, yeah, they, perhaps. they could be. Like, I mean, I've always found, I mean, you've known me for all your life and I have, I, I put a great store in remaining childish. <laughs> no, really, yeah, really, yeah. remaining like a child. Like, like when I read stuff and when I see things... I'm like a kid. I still am like a child. And it's a really good way to be. Like, I'm, I'm still every day amazed. I'm amazed by things, things that happen. Yeah, to me. Yeah, like, yeah. Wow, Jesus, I didn't expect yeah, that to happen. It's a good way to be. It is a good way to be. It leaves you, you know, sometimes it, it leads you up blind alleys. And, you know, maybe if you're older and more cynical and less naive. But I, I think naivety is a vastly underrated mm. quality in humans, you know, to be open to new things. And there's definitely the case when you get older you get worried, particularly in something like economics. People get very worried about their status and their position. When I talk to academic economists, some of whom are really nice and very brilliant, you can see that they're very, very cagey about leaving their own comfort zone Mm. and entertaining big ideas or new things. And I think that's just a human trait that you, if you invest lots and lots of your time and your intellectual capital and your sense of yourself in being an expert in certain areas, then you fear a new idea that can that doesn't, undermine you. Yeah. But that's only if you invest, it's, that's only if you're worried about status. If you're not worried about status, then I think you can you can roll with the punches all but the time. That's not just in economic terms. I mean, that's kind of human nature that you get more conservative as, as you get older. And and, and you do I'm getting more liberal as I get older. You I mean, are, I know. I mean, the commune here. The, is, <laughs> the commune is out of control. <laughs> the elder lemon has lost control. But it is that kind of thing when you have, you have more responsibility when you're older. So you're trying to kind of keep a lid on everything. So it's yeah. kind of harder to be a little bit more 
Flahulock. And loose, your, yeah. It's hard yeah. to be loose. Look, I just think what as I get older, I, I think there's a massive, massive upside in remaining childish. Yeah. And I mean childish in the the way in which you can be surprised by things. I love that idea. Yeah. I read things and I think, wow, I'd never thought yeah. of that, right? And so that idea of being childish, it means that you don't, nothing is sacred. That's the one thing I love about, you know, when I, when I looked at, at my own kids and I remember when you and I were kids, you know, years and years ago, the idea of exploring and going on an exploring adventure. Exploring is such a and, big thing, And, yeah. you know, I, I remember, you know, this is very odd, but everyone knows John and I have known each other for years. We would spend days up a tree. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Right. Up a tree. In like, hammering nails. Hammering <laughs> nails into a tree, making a tree house. And yeah. I know it sounds very much, you know, like a different world, but you'd be up a tree and you would find it endlessly fascinating and leaves and branches yeah. and birds and animals and people coming around and even when we were kids you didn't understand that people would go off and snog in a field and you'd be up a tree watching them and say this is the most hilarious thing you'd ever whoa, seen whoa 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 you know, <laughs> do you remember like the kids and again fellas you know teenagers drinking when we were about eight or nine yeah. and like all that stuff all what I loved about being a child is that you'd get up every day and the world amazed you and everything yeah. was fascinating yeah, 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 and yeah. everything was endlessly interesting and I still think now, I know it sounds weird, but yeah. I still live like that. I still think like that. I still think that everything... Which is brilliant. I is, think it's brilliant. Everything surprises you. And but, that, I think, is a childish way. So, I mean, that, I don't mean childish in that you're actually silly. Yeah. Although we kind of are. We are, right? yeah. But you can enjoy the silliness but as it's, well. But it's naivety. I think naivety is greatly underrated. Yeah. You know, but people say, oh, he's got experience and he's not naive. Oh, get out of here, man. But Stay as naive. you say as well, that the... the uh, you get the closer you get to when you pass 50, you do have these notions of, of your mortality. Well, you certainly can't sleep very well. Are you waking up in the middle of the night? Yeah, well, I go to bed very late. So, yes, that is true. You do. You do. But, so, I, I sleep. But, you know, you get a sense so you're of you're actually morti- living like a teenager. You still like you go to bed about 3 or 4 a.m. Yeah. And you get up at midday. No, not quite midday. Earlier than that. But. <laughs> But no, it is the, it's the thing of uh, as you get closer to your mortality, there's also the flip side of it is you can go all conservative or you can just go, fuck it. <laughs> when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 